0: saturday may 3rd 1980 miami county kansas mark and barry ages 17 and 14 decide to go fishing near bull creek in miami county kansas maybe an hour's drive south of kansas city the area is deserted countryside soon to be underwater when the Marais de Seine reservoir project is completed After they tire of fishing, they go off to explore the nearby woods and fields. When Barry sees a fresh mound of dirt near the creek, the two teens walk over to look more closely. Ominously, the mound is 10 inches high, 6 feet long, and 4 feet wide. When they spot a piece of denim and a red shirt sticking up from the dirt, They poke gingerly at the cloth. They recoil at a terrible smell and cry out together, It's a body. Poking some more, they see what looks like it might be a knee. That's finally enough for our young adventurers. Barry yells, We better go tell my mom as they race away from the scene. Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. There will be bad parenting, utter stupidity. Host may hurt listeners' feelings give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas, has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA, And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or podcasting or psychology. I think I'm an expert in lots of things, though, and I'm not shy about sharing my thoughts. In this episode, you will hear some harsh things about people. It's hard to do research on this case without getting angry at some of the people. But please keep in mind, I don't know these people personally, and I tend to be judgmental. So some of what I say is strictly my opinion. I could be wrong. You can be the judge. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about a really sad murder. This is part two of Prison City Murder's Case Six Evil Stepmother. If you haven't listened to part one yet, well, you won't know what's going on in this podcast. So you probably should do that. Here's a brief review of the case so far. The body of 13-year-old Chris Hobson of Overland Park, Kansas, is found May 3, 1980, in a shallow grave in rural Miami County, Kansas. He has been killed by three shotgun blasts. His 17-year-old stepbrother, Jimmy Crum, has admitted to committing the murder with the help of his 16-year-old friend, Paul Sorrentino. Jimmy accuses his mother, Sue Ann Hobson, of masterminding the murder plot. All three have been arrested for conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. This should be the part where the evil stepmother goes on trial and gets her just desserts. Well, not so fast. While the police are gung-ho to go to trial with what they have, the prosecutor is reluctant. As we've seen in other cases, politics often play a role in Kansas justice. This is true in the Hobson case. County prosecutors are elected to the position of county attorney in Kansas. The Johnson County attorney from 1977 to 1989 is Dennis Moore, who is a Democrat. Even now, it's unusual for heavily Republican Johnson County to elect Democrats. In the 90s, my family lived in Merriam, not far from where all this happened. And Dennis Moore was always in the news, an interesting guy, a good attorney, and a good politician. He previously served as Kansas Attorney General. After his stint as a prosecutor, he became a well-regarded defense attorney, notably representing the infamous Dr. Deborah Green, In 1998, he was able to get elected to Congress, although he only served one term there. You don't get elected county attorney in Johnson County by being soft on crime, but you also don't get elected if you lose high-profile cases like this one. The only evidence against Sue Anne for the murder conspiracy is what Jimmy, Paul, and her daughter, Suzanne, say. In Su Ann's own statement, she doesn't admit to conspiring in murder, just wanting to get rid of the problem. At this point, Jimmy and Paul have lawyers. Testifying against Sue Ann amounts to self-incrimination on their part, and their lawyers are not going to allow that. In addition, their defense teams are working hard to have their clients tried in juvenile court. Ed Hobson's behavior is also problematic. At first, he doesn't want anything to do with Sue Ann. When she gets Bond, one of the conditions is that she have no contact with him. However, it doesn't take him long to relent. By May 13th, he is in front of a judge asking that she be allowed to return to his house. I know, listeners, it makes your head want to explode, but there it is unbelievably, he believes Su Ann. Sue Ann grabs Ed's hand on the way out of the courthouse. They get in his car and drive home. With Chris's own father supporting Su Ann and no solid case against her, Dennis Moore announces that charges against her are dismissed. But, quote, hopefully someday, we will be able to refile the charges, unquote. After it is determined that Jimmy and Paul will be tried as adults, Jimmy's trial begins in the spring of 1981 in Miami County, where the murder took place. Miami County is a small rural county with the courthouse at the county seat of Paola, a city of under 5,000 people in the 80s. The county attorney there has never participated in a jury trial. The new Miami County attorney is a sports writer turned lawyer who was elected in a write-in campaign in which he was the only candidate. To his credit, he knows he needs experienced help and he gets experienced attorney Steve Tatum on board to lead the prosecution. Jimmy's attorney is Ed Byrne. The defense strategy is insanity. As Byrne tells the defense team, Jimmy's confessed and it's legal. We definitely can't try it on the merits or facts. The insanity defense is not a defense in this case, it's the only defense. The two sides negotiate before the trial The defense offers that Jimmy will testify against Sue Ann and Paul if his charge is reduced to involuntary manslaughter, making him eligible for parole almost immediately instead of after 15 years if he's convicted for first-degree murder. And parole on an involuntary manslaughter charge is likely to happen sooner rather than later. The prosecution counters by offering to let him plead guilty to aiding and abetting first degree murder. This also makes him eligible for parole very quickly, but getting parole on a charge like that is less likely than for involuntary manslaughter. The defense weighs the option and rejects the prosecution's deal. Hindsight is twenty twenty, of course, but I think I might have taken that deal. But the defense thinks they have a good chance with the insanity defense, and they desperately want Jimmy to get psychiatric treatment, which he won't get much of in a prison setting. At the trial, Byrne tries to stipulate that Jimmy admits to the act of murder, quote, at the behest of the defendant's own mother, unquote. They hope that by doing that, they can keep the details of the murder out of the trial. But Tatum isn't having any of that. The jury is taken through the entire investigation and shown large color photographs of the body and the grave. Then, Jimmy's statement is read out loud in all its gruesome detail. Listeners, I haven't gone through the actual murder with you yet. Honestly, I just keep putting it off, but that's coming up. This is what the jury heard from Jimmy Crumb's Statement to Police Detective, how long were you and Paul at the murder scene? Jimmy, a long time. Detective, why? Jimmy, the hole had to be dug and I just kept telling Paul, let's just leave him here and go back. And Paul said, no, we couldn't. Not now, it's too late. Detective, did Chris know why he was digging this hole? Jimmy. Well, we told him some sort of story about a truck. Detective. Where was he when he was first shot? Jimmy. Laying in the hole. He was told to try it on for size. Detective. Was anything said before the shooting took place? Jimmy. One, two, three. I just said one. Paul said two. I said three. And I stopped, and then I heard him fire. Fired the second shot, but I raised up and shot into some trees. Detective, did he try to get up out of the hole after Paul shot him? Jimmy, he fell back, and I heard him whimper after I fired, and I said, put him out of his misery. This is how the jury hears about Chris Hobson's pitiful last moments. Chris was only 13 years old. The defense puts on a pretty good case for insanity, To show how relentlessly Sue Ann manipulated Jimmy, they put her on the stand. She doesn't come off well at all. While jurors have some sympathy for Jimmy, though, the insanity defense doesn't work. The defense finds Jimmy Crumb guilty of first-degree murder. Jurors talk to the press afterwards. Quote, Most of the jurors felt sorry for the boy, being an instrument of his mother. I imagine most of the jurors would rather have seen his mother on trial. But we believe that he was guilty of murder under our law." Byrne doesn't give up. He contacts both prosecutors, Tatum and Moore, with a proposal. Get the judge to sentence Jimmy as an aider and a better, the deal he turned down before the trial, and issue instructions for psychiatric help in prison for Jimmy. Then Jimmy will testify against Sue Ann. No dice. The judge won't agree. Jimmy is sentenced to life with the possibility of parole in 15 years. There are appeals, but they don't go anywhere. Jimmy continues to refuse to testify against his mother. He begins serving his long sentence at the Hutchinson, Kansas, Correctional Facility. Hutchinson is located between Topeka and Wichita. Right after Jimmy's guilty verdict is announced, one of the jurors expresses the mood of the jury and... The public. Quote, his mother was the ringleader. If she isn't charged, someone is wacky. Unquote. This reflects public outrage that Sue Ann is still out walking around free. Dennis Moore feels this pressure, but decides to wait a little longer to see what happens at Paul's trial. Paul's attorney has heard about the deal Jimmy was offered to plead guilty to aiding and abetting in exchange for testimony against Sue Ann. Paul's testimony won't be as strong as Jimmy's would be, since he couldn't say that Sue Ann ever directly talked with him about the murder. However, Dennis Moore knows he has to proceed against Sue Ann sometime, and this adds to the circumstantial evidence against her. Unlike Jimmy's judge, Paul's judge signs off on the deal. Paul is sentenced to life with possibility of parole in seven and a half years. He begins serving his sentence at the age of 17 at Hutchinson and goes through the usual transfers within the state over the years. Prosecutors start building their circumstantial case against Sue Ann. On June 22, 1981, Ed and Sue Ann Hobson make a terrible mistake. They grant an interview to the Kansas City Star. In the interview, they blame Jimmy for everything, and they accept responsibility for nothing. They call Jimmy every name in the book. This enrages Jimmy's defense attorney, Ed Byrne. Soon, Dennis Moore receives a letter from Ed. In recent days, I must state candidly that I have been quite troubled over the prospect of something less than the full truth being presented at Mrs. Hobson's trial. It bothers me to think that justice might be evaded in this case if Jim fails to come forward and tell the whole truth about what really happened. I have visited with Jimmy in an effort to convince him to testify. He knows there is no legal benefit for him to do it, but after a considerable discussion, my client is ready and available to testify against Mrs. Hobson. In the meantime, there has been a lot of drama at the Hobson home. Ed divorced Suanne not long after the arrest but they soon remarried. Suzanne, now 15, lives with them and she is desperately unhappy. She often asked to live somewhere else even a foster home. I can only imagine how awful this was for her. Suzanne is one of the prosecution's main witnesses. The initial statement she gave police incriminates her mother and the prosecution plans to use that. Sue Ann expends a lot of effort during this time to get Suzanne to change her story. The pressure she puts on her own daughter is relentless. Honestly, I think if Sue Ann hadn't been afraid of losing control of what Suzanne would say at trial, She probably would have been happy to cut her daughter loose. All three of them abuse alcohol all the time and drugs. The emotional and financial pressures on the little family are enormous. There are constant, terrible screaming fights in the home. Sue Ann's trial begins in April 1982. Dennis Moore outlines the evidence that will be presented and, as he says, lead the jury to the only possible conclusion. Suanne Hobson coldly calculated the murder of her stepson and orchestrated that murder by using her own son. Quote, the real mystery is why the essence of Suanne Ann Hobson's complaints about Chris? He messed up in school. He didn't do the right things around the house. He intentionally tried to irritate Sue Ann. His table manners were bad, and he ate like a pig. He caused problems between Sue Ann and Ed. He manipulated Ed, and she was tired of it. And last but not least, Sue Ann simply didn't like him. Ed Hobson testified first. His blind devotion to Sue Ann cuts two ways. Either he truly knew she was innocent, and he's the father of the murder victim, or. Sue Ann was incredibly skilled at manipulating people, namely her husband and her son. When Chris's wallet was dropped off at the mall is a major issue at the trial. In all her statements to police, Sue Ann claims that she dropped it off the day after the murder, after Jimmy told her what had happened. Suzanne told police that Sue Ann dropped it off the day of the murder. Pause and Jimmy's testimony will be that they were supposed to pick up Chris that afternoon but decided not to go through with the plan. A frantic and furious Sue Ann called Jimmy and told him that she had already taken the wallet and some of Chris's clothes out of his room, and if they back out, Ed will kill her. At trial, Ed testifies that he looked through Chris's room the night of the murder and saw his wallet in there. This is a brand new story that he's come up with after living with Sue Ann for the two years since the murder. Suzanne also has a news story about what she heard Jimmy and her mother saying about getting rid of Chris and about what happened with the wallet. She contradicts her own statement to police and now testifies that her mother actually put the wallet at the mall the day after the murder, exactly what Suanne wanted her to say. Unfortunately for the defense, Suzanne's original statement is played for the jury, and it sounds natural and completely uncontrived, like she's actually telling the truth. Her testimony in court sounds like she's been hammered for two years by her mother to change her story, which is what's happened. Suzanne is only 15, but she comes across to the jury as a mini Suanne, hardened, stubborn, and selfish. Suzanne stares coldly at her daughter as she steps down from the witness stand. Jimmy's testimony is the centerpiece of the prosecution's case, and he is convincing and consistent. Sue Ann's lawyer's cross examination does little to rattle him. Paul's testimony differs slightly from Jimmy's, but the differences are pretty insignificant. The courtroom reaction is much more hostile to Paul than to Jimmy. After all, nobody manipulated Paul at all to get him to commit cold blooded murder of a child for a measly few hundred dollars. The most dramatic part of the trial begins when Sue Ann takes the stand. She is poised and calm while her lawyer guides her through her direct testimony. She effectively paints a picture of herself as a concerned, loving mother, trying to protect her son from the consequences of his terrible crime. Then she faces Dennis Moore cross-examination. She needs to put on the performance of her life. On direct, Sue Ann told a new story about the wallet, claiming that Jimmy took the wallet the day after the murder and put it at the mall. I can only imagine that she did that to try to mitigate Suzanne's disastrous testimony. Maybe she's thinking if Jimmy took the wallet, then Suzanne's statements don't matter as much. Moore tries to make something of that, but he can't shake her much on it. Suzanne comes across pretty badly when she talks about how much she loved. Chris. Nobody believes that. But overall, she doesn't do a bad job on Cross. Now it's her lawyer's turn to bolster her story. They put on a parade of character witnesses who swear to Sue Ann's honesty and thoughtfulness as a friend. Listeners, don't forget that John Wayne Gacy and Ted Bundy, and probably Hitler, had people who said how nice and normal they were. Sue Ann's mother, Ruth Sally, testifies that Jimmy confessed to her that the murder was all his idea. It's painfully obvious to everyone that she is lying to protect Sue Ann. Even Sue Ann's defense attorney admits that putting her on the stand was a mistake. Ed testifies in defense of his wife. The kindest thing observers can say about his erratic behavior while testifying is that he seemed emotionally unstable. In closing arguments, Dennis Moore paints a sinister picture of Suzanne. There are two sides to Suzanne Hobson. She has friends who are willing to come into court and testify to her character, her honesty, and who will stand by her even when confronted with the fact that she's lied to numerous people. But there is a darker side to Suzanne Hobson, a side that can plan and execute, through her own son, the murder of her 13-year-old stepson, the boy who called her mom. Sue Ann is intelligent and Suanne Ann Hobson is masterful at deceiving, at deception, and at manipulation of others for her own ends. Sue Ann Hobson would have you believe that she's a warm, caring person, a good mother. But does a good mother abandon her son for seven years? Does a warm, loving person abandon her parents and not talk to them for four years? By her own admission, she is a liar. You heard Sue Ann's testimony during cross-examination when she said... But Mr. Moore, I meant get rid of the problem, not get rid of the boy. Consider that very carefully, because I think you're going to find that the problem for Sue Ann Hobson was Chris Hobson. And she did a good job of getting rid of the problem. While he's talking... Sue Ann's face gets redder and redder, and she glares hatefully at the prosecutor. In closing arguments, Sue Ann's lawyers emphasize the weak motive. If they had a $50,000 insurance policy on this kid, you might have a motive or a reason for it. To kill somebody, you have to have an awfully good motive. That's actually a good point, listeners. In his rebuttal, Moore attacks this, quote, The motive is the oldest motive in the world for murder. She hated Chris, unquote. Then Sue Ann's lawyers talk about Ed, quote, If there is no reasonable doubt in your minds Consider Ed Hobson. Chris Hobson is not with us. The living victim is right here. And it is this man, the father of the dead boy. Knowing everything, he remarried her. He told you she didn't do it, that she didn't arrange for the murder of his own flesh and blood. Are you folks going to say, Ed, you don't know what you're talking about. We've been with this case for seven days. You've been with her for two years. But we know better than you." Well, that's exactly what the jury does they find Sue Ann guilty. Sue Ann is sentenced to life in prison. The last appeal I could find for her was in 1983. It was very long and technical with lots of points of appeal and every point is denied by the Kansas Supreme Court. The women's prison in Kansas is in Topeka. That's where Suzanne was sent to serve the rest of her life in prison. Listeners, I tried to be open minded about this case, but I call this episode Evil Stepmother, so that probably gives away what I really think. Let's try to believe Suzanne. Her natural son, Jimmy, is so unbalanced that he decides to kill her beloved stepson. Okay, nobody but Ed describes her relationship with Chris as loving. In fact, just the opposite. But let's accept that she doesn't want to kill him. Just get him to behave better. So she takes her daughter and goes to see Jimmy, who is a druggie, And emotionally unstable. She unloads on him about her problems with Chris. The night of the murder, she goes out to meet Ed for dinner and tells her daughter to stay in her room. She's expecting Jimmy and a friend to come over and what? Give Chris a stern talking to about his behavior? That's really hard to believe, but let's accept that. She even admits she thought they might beat him up. Wasn't she worried that Chris would tell Ed? Listeners, this is where I don't think I can go along with innocent Sue Ann anymore, but I'll try. Maybe she thinks they can convince him not to tell maybe by threatening to kill Ed or something. So she and Ed get home that night, and to her horror, Chris isn't there. She doesn't know what to think. But then, the next day, Jimmy tells her what happened. Surely, the natural reaction of a loving mother with a drugged-up, unstable son, would be to get Jimmy a lawyer and convince him to turn himself in. If she's innocent and she'd done that, she would have been fine, even if he does decide to lie about her later. Or how about the old standby, every law-abiding citizen's reaction, call the police? But neither of those are going to be your reaction if you're guilty and want to get away with murder. If she's guilty, all she needs is for one, Jimmy and his accomplice to keep their mouths shut, which you would think they would do since we're talking about a murder here, and two, for the body not to be found, which is highly likely. So... If you're guilty, you keep quiet, just like Sue Ann did. Then there's the wallet. If she thinks Jimmy and Paul are just going to talk to Chris and then bring him home, why plant the wallet? By her own statement, she doesn't even know what's happened to Chris until the next day. So, planting the wallet the day of the murder shows she knows Chris isn't ever coming home. That's why when the wallet was planted is so crucial. When Suzanne first talks to the police, she has no reason to lie. If she's mistaken, isn't it more likely she would be mistaken two years later rather than when she first talked to the police? So the wallet was planted the day of the murder and it was planted by Sue Ann. Listeners, I tried, but Sue Ann is guilty. And if you're guilty, you do what Sue Ann did in the weeks after the murder. Play the supportive wife and stepmother. Sell your car that was used in the murder and start redecorating Chris's room. She actually did that. So yes, the jury got this right. To see Sue Ann as innocent, you have to be capable of serious suspension of disbelief. Ed Hobson is perfectly capable of deluding himself completely. After the verdict, he wrote a letter to Dennis Moore. You see, Mr. Moore, my wife knows all the pain I have been through. She would not do anything to hurt me, even in fun. You obtained justice for no one. Instead, you got blood, my blood and my family's blood. Believe it or not, Ed stayed married to Sue Ann and continues to support her to this day. She was paroled in 2016 at the age of 75 to the outrage of the community. According to Andy Hoffman's blog, she lives with Ed in Prairie Village. I hope they're living the miserable, lonely lives they deserve. Paul and Jimmy both served long sentences, but were out on parole by 2000, both only in their 30s at that time. They seem to have used their time wisely in prison. I did a little research online and I think I found both of them. If I have the right guys, they live in large states and seemed to have gone on to live productive, decent lives. Suzanne spent years getting her life together. She spent years in rehab and under psychiatric care. Finally, she was able to come to terms with her part in Chris's death and the lies she told to protect her mother. She changed her name and cut off all contact with Ed and Sue Ann. Very wise of her. Chris's mother and sister, Shirley J. Hobson and Tanny J. Teed, T-E-E-D, are both buried in Independence, Missouri at Mount Washington Cemetery. Sadly, I think, Ed didn't bury Chris with them. Our little victim, was buried at Johnson County Memorial Gardens, like our carjacking victim in last week's episode. Chris lived such a short, sad life. There's only one picture of him in any of the articles. It looks like a school picture, and he looks like a lot of 13-year-olds, open-faced and kind of hopeful. He could have done all kinds of good things with his life if one heartless woman hadn't ended it too soon. There are findagrave.com entries for all three of those graves. One message left by an anonymous poster on Chris's site sums up how a lot of people still feel about this case, including me. Chris... Your so-called father should be ashamed of himself for standing by the woman who killed you. Please rest in peace. I've posted the links to the sources used for this episode in the show notes. These sources were especially important. Reporter Andy Hoffman's book, Family Affairs, was invaluable His website is www.AndyHoffmanBooks.com. That's A-N-D-Y-H-O-F-F-M-A-N books.com. Area newspapers provided excellent coverage of the case, particularly the Kansas City Star, Olathe Daily News, and the Columbia Missourian. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review. Even critical feedback is appreciated. Recently, I set up an email for the podcast, Prison City Murders, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can comment on the cases on the podcast website, Prison City That's Prison City Murders all one word. Dot, blueberry without the ease.net. Little mental health tip listeners. If you ever think you may not have the best mother in the world, just thank your lucky stars. She isn't Sue Ann Hobson. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.